If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. economic indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast Today is the first anniversary of an insurrection, a putsch, a riot, a holiday trip for Republicans, but it was the takeover of Capitol Hill by what looked like a rabble, but it could have easily been a much more dangerous rabble than came to pass. John, we're going to talk all America. Woo! You know, first real gig of the new year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. talk all America. Because this is the first anniversary of something that was really serious. And you know what's interesting to me is, I'm not sure how many have been charged, but I thought, you know the way sometimes in America, justice is swift, mm. right? You know the way they say justice delayed is justice denied? Yeah. But if you're actually sitting there, you're one of the fellows with the horns. Actually, the fellow with the horns is gone. He's gone. He's and there's gone. quite a few of them actually... In, but did they get proper sentences? Yeah, they did. Yeah, quite a few of them did. But there's still loads out there and there's still people denying that it ever happened. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's fake news. It it never happened. Fake news or that it was, it was a tourist kind of attraction. Yeah, yeah, a tourist yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um, the sort of thing you buy on a bus ticket. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. go around Washington on the bus ticket. We are going to come back to this. We're going to talk to Ed Luce, who is the national editor for the United States for the Financial Times and all around Good Egg. We're going to talk to Ed in a little bit about what is happening in the States because, John, had you said this time last year, there's been this failed sort of coup attempt. Trump seems to be orchestrating it. He's This is the last act of his presidency. Biden is in, not with a huge majority, but a substantial majority, yeah. a decent majority. Yeah. They have both the House, they have Congress, they've got the Fed in their back pocket. You know, 
They've got COVID. They've got all this cover to do amazing things. They introduced sort of MMT. The first six months are flying. And now there's a sense of deep unease in the United States that not only is Trump and Trumpianism not dead, but in fact, it's coming back. Yeah, that's a frightening thought. And of course, looking ahead to later in the year when we have the midterm elections, which Biden could actually lose both the House and the Congress, and then he's just like a sitting duck. But it's not just about his economic plans that are going to go by the wayside. No, it's all about America has descended into a profoundly divisive culture war, which should not be taken lightly, which is incredibly serious and has deep consequences for everybody involved. Mm. Uh, Like the culture war we're having in our family at the moment. Oh, God. We are having a deep (laughs) culture war over the Christmas tree. Happens every year. Why? What? what? Basically, the naughty prod end of the family. Okay. Oh, dear. We're stepping into a domestic year. Once the Christmas tree down as quickly as possible. If this Christmas tree in our house could be put up on Christmas Eve and taken down on Stephen's Day, it would be. Right. Really? What's the point of I that? Don't, I don't get it. It's a naughty thing, right? See, okay. it's supposed to come down a little Christmas. I love a light. I love <laughs> loads of lights, right? And a big Santi on the top of it. And so the culture war is between the Southerner, me, yeah. who if I could keep it all going, I'd have the tree up until Patrick's Day. <laughs> That's supposed to be bad luck, though. And you the know naughty that. side, which wants down on the 1st or 2nd or 3rd of January. But it's supposed to be Nullignamon. You don't get many Nordies. The ones I know say nulling them on. I can tell you that, right? Okay. So the culture war is deep. You might think it's existential for the United States, but it's existential for the McWilliams family. We are on the tree side. We're splitting the family down the middle. It's profound. You know, if you understand anything about the United Ireland, you'll realize it's going to come down to things like this. I feel like the independent in the middle of all It's not going to be Chucky or Law or what did you do or whatever. It's going to come down to things like sponge cakes, Christmas trees, H or H, rashers or bacon. These are the profound distinctions between the two tribes. If we can sort that out. I don't think there's 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 any sorting. sorting. There's no sorting. Anyway, what else is on your mind? Um, Well, I tell you what, let let me kick off with a lovely email we got from a David Kane one of our Patreons, and he does come up with a very good question, okay. uh, which I am fascinated by. So what he actually says is he read an article from way back in 2019 in from the Irish Times, and it was about the OECD productivity statistics. Okay. And he says the article showed how we are the most productive, how we, the Irish, are the most productive nation on earth with the average worker adding about $99 to the economy for each hour worked. This is significantly above the G7 average, which was about $62 hourly in 2018. The stats show that Ireland still holds first place in 2019-2020. The OECD will be releasing the new stats later on this month. But, and here's his question, he looked up the average hourly wage of an Irish worker. And that is about 25 euros an hour. Right. And given that the hourly contribution of the Irish worker to the economy is likely to be about 100 euros an hour, Where's, where does the other 75 euros that's go? That's a really very good question. And David, thank you very much for that question. And I'm 
delighted you're uh, enjoying the podcast and learning a wee bit of economics. That's fantastic. So the question is, if the average productivity of the average worker in Ireland is $100 an hour and the average wage is $25 an hour, mm-hmm. where's the 75 in the middle going? Okay, and that's yeah. an extremely good question. So let's break it down because in that question is a snapshot of how the Irish economy works. It's a snapshot of the impact of foreign direct investment, but it's also, first of all, let's talk about the dodginess of statistics. There's a great book of how to lie with statistics, okay? <laughs> right? Yeah. That when people use averages and medians and whatever, right? So basically that figure of the average productivity belies something profound, which is the fact that a small amount of workers could be unbelievably productive. Yeah. And a lot of workers could be not particularly productive, and that would bring up the average. Right. So you kind of think that, oh, well, maybe what we're talking about is the median, the middle person. Yeah. We're not here. We're talking about the average. Okay. So, for example, if you have some workers who are generating 5,000 euros per hour, and you have other workers who are generating 20 euros per hour, you don't need that many people at 5,000 to drag up the average. Sure, so that's the first yeah, thing. That's yeah. the first thing. Second thing, but the more important thing, is that what it suggests is that certain sectors of the Irish economy are much, much more productive than others, right? Because if everybody was producing 100 euros per hour, wages would gravitate towards that, would be dragged up towards that figure. And the reason is the following, is that in economics, labor's productivity should be what labor earns. So if you are a highly productive worker, you should be earning a highly sophisticated wage, right? Mm. Now, there's two types of productivity. There's labor productivity. There's a thing called total factor productivity. So I would say this is total factor productivity. But But what is the difference? So you've got two factors of production. In the main, you've labor and capital, right? Mm. So what happens is that always think about it as 10 men digging a ditch versus one guy in a tractor digging the ditch. Right, right? okay. okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the productivity of the 10 men digging the ditch is the same as the productivity of the one guy. But the productivity of the one guy is total factor. So there's the labor and the capital. Yes. Right? So as you... As in the capital, the 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 tractor tractor itself. The tractor, yeah, Yeah, the tractor. The tractor versus the shovel approach to productivity. Yeah, 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 gotcha. As you add more and more capital, the productivity of those workers increases. Mm. So what is happening is the following. In certain sectors that are highly capital intensive, like the FDI sector, who also have pricing power, who Mm -hmm. have actually monopolies. So for example, you take pharmaceutical. Pharmaceutical drugs are unusually highly priced yeah. All over the world because they're driven by patents rather than by scarcity and supply and demand and all that sort of stuff. And we produce lots of them. Yeah. Right. In that case, what you get is if you're producing lots and lots of expensive pharmaceutical drugs, mm-hmm. what you will find, and of course, if you're industrializing the process in a way in which you're using lots of capital, the workers in that factory will be unbelievably productive. Right. That's the first thing. And they will be earning more than 100 euros an hour, or yeah. should be, right? Yeah, yeah. But what we're seeing is the Irish economy is a significant blend of two sectors, three sectors, actually four sectors, right? One is the very, very highly productive foreign direct part of the private sector. Right. Then you have 
the very usually low productivity public sector. Very low productivity. Yeah, very low productivity, yeah. right? Then you have, in certain sectors, the quite high productivity agricultural sector, because agriculture okay. in Ireland is highly, highly efficient. Mm -hmm. And then you have the fourth general retail, pubs, bars, that type of the economy, okay? Which tends to be quite low productivity. Yeah. So what to answer... Very low at the moment. Yeah, exactly. We're going nowhere at the moment. Although I do think that opening the pubs at eight is just simply... Closing the pubs at eight. Closing the pubs at eight is just put opening time earlier. Yeah. No, no. It's like turning the clock back. Yeah. You know what I mean? You kind of... You, let's pretend it's all nine o'clock and we know it's all eight o'clock. Yeah. That's it's a big game of let's pretend putting the clock back. So what, what he's capturing there is the fact that lots and lots of Irish workers work in low productivity or reasonably low productivity sectors, mm. which is why the wages are low in those sectors, right? Yeah. And then a number of Irish workers that work in incredibly high productivity sectors, which is why the average productivity is very high. I'll just give you the figures. There's about 2 million people employed in this country. About 400,000 people work in multinationals. They're the high productivity people. Right. And that's what drags it up. But to come back... It also shows you the way in which multinationals have profoundly affected this country because where you will pick up the difference, the 75, is in the profits of multinationals. Yes. Right? Yes. So there's always a split in productivity between profits and wages. So what we're seeing is huge profitability in certain small sectors of the economy, which has been driven by high productivity and what we're, where, we, where we see this percolating down is in the tax rate. So, for example, Ireland is now getting more corporation tax per head of population than any other country in the world. So even though you hear all this talk about we have a very low corporation tax, which we do, yeah. right, 12.5%, we generate huge amounts of right. tax. Okay. So Ireland is getting more corporation tax per citizen than any other country in the world, which we never wow, hear about. Okay, because people are yeah, always yeah. against the multinationals. They're big yeah. foreigners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's just the way in which the economy works. So, Dave Kane, you have, in one question, exposed, number one, the structure of the Irish economy, number two, the difference in employment, number three, the difference in taxation, and number four, the opportunity. And this is the key thing, is that if Ireland can move, they call, up, the productivity cycle, yeah. like another rung or two, wages will come up. So wages are all about productivity. They should be. Or wages are all about the split between capital and labour. And if we want the average person's wages to go up, either profitability in the country will go down or we'll become more productive. That total factor productivity I talked mm. about will go up. And that's the holy grail. We have to get towards a position where total factor productivity in Ireland is higher than everywhere else. And we're getting there. We're moving in that direction. And I think that what David or Dave exposes there is some of the weird anomalies in the Irish economy, but they're not all bad. You know, if you're yeah. an ideologue, if you're an ideologue, you'll say that's all bad because that shows mm. you that the capitalists are making all the money and the money's going out of the country. But next, but lots of it's coming back in tax too. So right. actually keep the questions coming. This is quite a good way of opening the podcast. Yeah, no, that was that, that's a brilliant question, actually. So if you have any questions about the economy, by all means, just zap them into Patreon and we will answer them every week. Nice one, Dave. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. John, let's go to the States. As we were saying, it's the first anniversary of the insurrection in Washington. And yep. I'm delighted we have Ed Luce on the line from the States. Ed is the national editor for the FT for the United States. So that means he's not just doing finance and economics, he's doing politics, he's doing culture, he's doing sociology. It's a massive remit. It's a pretty big remit, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of air miles. <laughs> yeah, that is a lot of air miles. Yeah. That's a lot of flying over the flyover counties. Yeah. Okay. It's a lot of PCR tests. It's a lot of, it's a lot of antigen tests, exactly. A lot of, let's not go down that road. No, no, okay? no, no. Let's not go down Co- that road. But his latest book is The Retreat of Western Liberalism. And it's again, and it comes after a book he wrote about the specter of decline in the United States. And it's the same general theme as that if America declines like all empires do, right? So, for mm. example, the British Empire, the decline of the British Empire. I was actually reading recently about the trial of Casement, you know, one of oh, my yeah, yeah, obsessions, yeah. you know. Brilliant. And when you read the details of the trial of Casement, what you actually see there is the end of British liberalism and the end of the British Empire. Because what you see is that Casement represents modernity. Mm. He is a human rights campaigner. He is an LGBT campaigner. Mm. He is a nationalist in a small country that's been kicked around by a bigger country. He, his urge is to unite all colonial victims, be the Egyptian, Indian, Irish, Latin American, African, under one banner. So he's a modern thinker. He's like a one-man walking Amnesty International, right? <laughs> okay? And against him, you have the forces of reaction. Yeah. Right? You have the British establishment. And it's really interesting because what you feel is that even though the trial is at the Old Bailey, or maybe because it's at the Old Bailey, it is a show trial. Yeah. It's a show trial yeah, of yeah. one man. And all the forces that are on his side are the forces of modernity and progression. And all the forces that are on the British side are the forces of atavistic, militaristic, 
imperial Britain. And you can sense even from that, that's the kind of the end, right? Yeah. So countries have moments where they decline. And what Ed is talking about is, are these moments, these events that we're living through, mm. will they be looked on in history? Jesus, don't you, I hope to God you're not comparing Casement to Trump. No, I'm comparing <laughs> the events. I'm comparing <laughs> the events. No, no, no. I will, I will, I will give you chapter and verse on Casement. God, I'm going to be so boring in Casement after a while. Yeah, I but know that's it. another, that's another project, another project. So we have Ed on the line. I'm delighted we're able to talk to him because he's a brilliant insight. Ed, how are you doing? I'm I'm very well. All the better for for seeing you, and also for being surrounded by snow here. I, I I'm a, a traditionalist. I like in Washington D.C. We've had a snowstorm, and and now it's the beautiful next day with blue skies and six eight inches of snow everywhere. Well, you know, as Joyce said at the end of Dead, the snow fell on the Bog of Allen and all over the universe. There you go. The- uh, well, so, that's, that's a good line. Unfortunately, those dinners are being cancelled this week because of Omicron. Yeah, I know, I, was, I know. How's that? How's I it? Go to one. I was. I have my Edwardian costume. Oh, of course, because you know. I mean, we're we're pushing out that Joyce thing. Definitely, this is going to be the year. We're going to come back to that in a sec. Talking about Joyce, but we will we will we will conclude our discussion about the dead because in the poor old dead, Gabriel had two or three epiphanies. And they exposed a world that he particularly didn't want to see. And let's talk about epiphanies, moments, events in the United States. This day last year was that event in Capitol Hill. What would you call it? I I would call it a a failed putsch. I mean, others use terms like um, insurrection, attempted coup, and a number of things along those lines. I call it a failed putsch because I think that uh, an insurrection generally speaking, in its plain English sort of meaning, involves larger numbers of people and, and bigger clashes of uh, of forces and violence. Five police officers did die. 900 people or so are indicted for playing a role in that day. So, you know, some of them were violent, very, very violent roles. And the intent, you know, to hang the vice president and anybody else they came across was there. But I think Fail Putsch, and your Munich reference is more appropriate because this was a, a sort of amateur hour, kind of unplanned thing of a bunch of rabid yahoos that doesn't really qualify as, as a coup or an insurrection in my book, but could be looked back on by history if things go wrong as something analogous to the, to the Beer Hall book. Now, of 1923 as something portending a much, much more ominous future. Now, let's talk about that ominous future, because everything I'm reading now in the States, particularly in the last few months, people are throwing out expressions like social breakdown, political breakdown, even at the extreme, civil war. They're painting a future for the United States. A lot of people that I read, that is kind of not apocalyptic, but quite quite scary, quite terrifying. What's your take? I mean, you're you're in Washington, you're in the Beltway, you're talking to people all the time, you're getting, you're feeling the, the at least the political pulse. What's your sense of what's going on in the states? Well, I think psychologically, you know, to measure where we are today and compare it to how most people, particularly in this town, but the majority of Americans felt a year ago when they thought they had finally seen the back of Trump, and where they felt that this attempted coup, fail, putsch, whatever you call it, had exposed just how lethal and unrestrained his threat was. 
there was a sense of hope. Biden's a decent man, uh, is a Democrat, small D and big D, down to his fingertips. And he would restore a sense of normality to the United States. And if you compare that feeling of a pretty sort of heady, more a sense of relief than wild optimism, if you compare that uh, feeling to the foreboding that we now all experiencing, it's a pretty sobering contrast. And I think, you know, it's, it's easy to explain why. The Republican Party fever didn't break. It's actually doubled down. It's more Trump's party today than it was a year ago. A year ago, the leaders of the Republican Party on Capitol Hill were openly blaming Trump for this reckless attempt, assault on American democracy. Now they're falling in line behind him and saying that this is a stolen election and Biden is therefore by implication an illegitimate president. If you have one party in a two-party system that is essentially rejecting the rules of democracy and you've got a majority of its voters accepting the line that this was a stolen election and a majority of that majority, so roughly half of Republican voters saying violence is justified in such circumstances, in some circumstances uh, against the state, then you have really deep red warning lights, flashing lights about the sustainability of American democracy. It has to be based on a certain amount of honor, if you like, that if you lose, you accept that you've lost and you might, you'll have another bite at the apple next time. That's gone. Now, when you go back and you look at Republican history, we're talking about, let's, let's, let's reason, we're talking about the party of Reagan, the Bushes themselves, and then various other, various other Republicans. There was never a sense the Republicans were anything other than the party of the establishment, of big institutions, of the army, of the banking system, of the civil servants as well, of, of various different of the of the, of the Ivy League universities, the institutions that are America, and there was a, they were always in my in my head always synonymous, and there was the Democrats that were slightly more radical, and the Democrats were slightly more sulfuric and more representative of something that could be not revolutionary but could be a force for change, and the Republicans were like very much like the Tories in England, the force for the status quo. Why in the last 12 months has that not been reestablished? That's what, that's what amazed me. Because when I watched the insurrect and the push on TV, right? And I watched it. Actually, it was incredulous. My kids and I were watching. I was like, is this actually happening? Your, your man with the horns and the flags and the Confederate flags and all that malarkey. I thought, okay, well, this is, this is the end of something. And we're going to get a new beginning. What has happened in the last few months to, number one, allow... Trump to re-emerge as the, not the front runner, but the only power in Republicanism. And number two, allowed the Democrats, who you would have thought, even though the majorities were slim, at least had the moral and psychological majority, to kind of drop the ball. What's, what's been happening? A number of things have been happening, but I would, whilst agreeing with your characterization of the traditional Republican role, I think make an additional point is that we're perhaps being too generous, particularly when in hindsight, to the Republican forebears. There's been this debate, you know, in America ever since Trump became the nominee first time round, as to whether you know he's a, a, a radical break from the Republican Party or a logical consequence. I tend to go with the latter. I think that he is a symptom of the disease rather than a cause of the disease. And I think if you look back 
uh, Newt Gingrich's Republican Party in the 1990s. You look back at Sarah Palin's candidacy, vice presidential candidacy in 2008. You look back at some of the Southern strategy that Nixon embarked upon and that Reagan then picked up and polished to use uh, dog whistles to essentially racially alienated uh, poorer white voters, then you can see all the predicates for for Trump actually stretching back decades. And that this is, uh, in a sense, a logical conclusion of, of a party that is embraced a Southern strategy and now nationalized it to basically anywhere that feels that way, which is rural small town and to some degree suburban America. Now explain to me, Ed, so the Southern strategy, was that to do with the fact that the Dixie Democrats ran the South for 100 years? And this, this was the Republican strategy to, see, to seize the South from those Democrats. What was it? What did they do? Because remind me again. So when Lyndon Johnson in 1965 passed the Voting Rights Act, uh, which you know empowered, um, enfranchised um, African American voters in the South and ended the Jim Crow century that had come after the Civil War, in which you'd had essentially South Africa style apartheid. He turned to his aide Bill Moyers, and he said, "We've just lost the South for a generation, the Democrats. We've just lost the South." And three years later, Nixon began to activate that. He began to say, "Look, we're your party, the Republicans, the party." of Abraham Lincoln is actually your party now because the Democrats have betrayed you. And it was a dog whistle, very effective. I mean, it took about uh, it took about half a generation to a generation for them to really complete it. Carter won Georgia. Bill Clinton won Georgia. So Democrats continue to win the South, parts of the South. But now there's, you know, it, it's pretty much entirely Republican. So I suppose it was the backlash to the ending of Jim Crow, to the onset of the civil rights era. And a lot of the Voting Rights Act, most of it, has been gutted by a Supreme Court that is majority conservative with uh, you know, nominees that are way, way more fundamentalist, if you like, in their judicial philosophy than what we're used to seeing from, from Republican presidents. So we've got a kind of a backlash a reactionary movement in the sort of truest sense of the term reactionary against the modern era in America, against modernity, against multiculturalism, against, of course, sexual uh, minorities and so forth. And it's a minority of America that support it, but they've got control of the institutions and particularly the judiciary. And the Electoral College um, gives them an inbuilt advantage, uh, as does the Senate system. And then if you add gerrymandering for the House, you can have a minority reversal of a lot of what we've taken for granted in modern America. So Ed, let's look forward a wee bit. We've got the midterm elections, huge for, for both parties, but particularly for Biden because they're Biden's to lose. And, and, the, and the, that means they lose power. And for the next two years, the last two years of presidency, he could well become that lame duck that many American presidents become in those last two years. What do you think is going to happen? Project forward 2022. I think the the chance history tells you that Democrats will lose, um, at least the House, maybe the Senate as well. But they only need to lose one for Republicans to block anything from going forward legislatively. So it would be bad news for Biden's domestic agenda, such as it is. 
It would, of course, lead to the immediate winding up of the January 6th investigative committee, which, you know, is in full swing at the moment. And I think it would set up the stage for a rather dystopian rematch in 2024 between Biden and Trump. Now, you know, three years is a long time. And that supposition today that it will be Biden v. Trump might be, you know, belied by events. Biden's going to turn 80 this year. Um, and Trump, you know, uh, doesn't look a rude picture of health. And it's possible that, you know, the, the, there might be Republican challenges to Trump. Uh, it looks doubtful at this point, given his grip. But, you know, events happen and things can change. But right now, I would say that that's the likeliest scenario. What could prevent it? Talking of Irish poets and writers, you know, that, that, that old wonderful line about the, the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. It is very hard for the Democrats to act single-mindedly. It always has been. But to act with the degree of sort of targeted ruthlessness that you, you, you see from Republicans. And I think that what those frustrated supporters of Biden would like to see in 2022 is a far more ruthless sense of pragmatism about the level of threat there is to American democracy and the need to twist arms, break heads, do whatever it takes to enact protections to American voting integrity. Because if they don't, 2024 might be the last election held under these rules. That's, that might sound alarmist. It's, well, well, explain that to me. Well, um, Trump this week issued, uh, you might have seen it, a statement endorsing Viktor Orban of Hungary. That is essentially the Republican strategy. They've organized, they see him as a kind of John the, uh, the Baptist to Trump's Jesus. He's proved you can do all this without a coup. You can create, you can hollow out the institutions. You can create a liberal democracy, a de facto one-party state through rigging the rules. So Orban is really the, the North Star for the conservative movement in America today. And I think if Trump were re-elected, that hollowing out would pass a critical point where it would be very, very difficult to imagine free and fair elections under the old rules that we've been used to all our lives and all our grandparents' lives, for that matter. That's a pretty chilling thought. I, well, I wasn't aware of the endorsing of Orban, but you're absolutely right, because what Orban has done is he's turned Hungary, a notional democracy, into a one-party state with very little opposition, and he's managed to do that within the European Union. And what you're saying is Trump will be able to do that without even having to genuflect to any other superior power that has the purse strings of something or other. But can I just, before we go, there was something that struck me in the first few months of the Biden administration, and it was Biden, and it was Janet Yellen, and it was Jay Powell, and it was all these kind of older heads. And you could sense that they realized just how close they had come to catastrophe. And so they threw the kitchen sink at the economy. They opened up the spigots. They spent money. The feds, don't worry, we will back you. Basically, just give us the invoice at the end of the year. We'll give you the cash. And there was a sense that that old American establishment realized we just dodged a bullet there and that ain't going to happen again. Is that coalition fractured now already? I, I think to some degree it is. I mean, remember, it's only a 50-50 Senate, so one Democratic dissenter, and there are two basically, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, can hold the whole 
thing up. But I think also Biden put all his eggs in the vaccination basket. I don't think they accounted for quite such a large share of Americans refusing to take the jab. And therefore, there hasn't been sufficient planning to get sort of basic things like lateral flow tests available in local pharmacies. It's still, even now, very hard to find a test. And a little bit lackadaisical on the global vaccine drive. You know, the West in general, but America in particular, has been disappointingly faint in its global vaccination effort. And, you know, if we know anything, it's that new mutations will come from unvaccinated areas and it will reach us and upset economic growth, supply chains, create inflation, cause middle-class angst, and all of, all of which are way more important for how people vote in midterm elections than the subject we've just been discussing. What I've just been, you know, saying is an elite concern. Yeah, no, I hear you. Ed, listen, great to talk to you. Go back to the snow. We'll quote Joyce and Yates and also there's good stuff. It's been lovely to talk to you. Take care. Always a pleasure, David. Do you know, as you guys were talking there, I had to actually You glazed look. over. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I was fascinated. And Ed was brilliant. Yeah, he was really good. He's got a great But I them. did have to look up the word putsch. Ah, the German word putsch. Yeah, and it's P-U-T-S-C-H. It's like Deutsch, D-E-U-T-S-C-H-E. Yeah. And, it, and, the, and the definition of it is... What's the definition? A, a secretly plotted and suddenly executed attempt to overthrow a government. There you are Well, there you are. I, was, I was in a beer keller in Munich just before Christmas. And the funniest thing is... And do you know what it was called? Sounds bad. The Rat Keller. Right. It's a really famous German yeah, beer yeah. keller. And I went in... And it is kind of funny because it is slightly umpapa. Mm, you know, yeah. so you've got to get slightly buxom ones giving you beer. And it's 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 like old Germany. It's like yeah, yeah. Alt-Deutschland. I'd say they're great fun. It's really good. Actually, one of the greatest secrets of European tourism is Germany. It's an amazing country to visit. Mm. But as I was sitting in the beer keller, yeah. there is always a little bit of you thinks, mm, was this the one? <laughs> is this where the little fellow was? <laughs> and you know, the fascinating, and you, you always know you lose an argument when you compare your opponent to Hitler. That means you've lost. So what I know is because, you, you know, you, you throw the kitchen sink at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're not doing that. But what we are doing is the following. Look at the sequence of events. Hitler's, this 1923 little putsch, right? Mm. They don't punish him properly. He uses his time in prison to write Mein Kampf. Yeah. That places him as a victim. And then he begins the process of building this crazy party of his. Trump is not that. But what is interesting, what's slightly analogous, is the idea that sometimes revolutionary times start, or always, with a spark. And what is very clear is that at that very moment, you never appreciate that that's what's happening. Mm. Because it's so easy to look through the rearview mirror and say, oh, that happened then and that happened. It's the difference what I always call between forecasting which is telling people what's going to happen, yeah. and past casting, yeah, yeah. which is telling people what happened. So let's never fall into the past casting frame of mind. Yeah, but having said that, though, Mac, I mean, I've been reading, as I do, you know, yeah. all sorts of stuff, but there was yeah, one... By the way, you would love John's reading list. It is... Breitbart. It's eclectic. Uh... <laughs> it's sulfuric. It's insurrectionist. Uh... But it's usually all wrong, by the way. Well, <laughs> no, no, the, the economist is thrown in there as well. But but I was reading, though, recently, 
that, you know, there is a big turn in the Republican Party and it is beginning to split right down the middle. And that's what an awful lot of people are hoping for, to actually split the Republican Party, kind of to exercise out all the the crazies in there. Yeah. Um, So while you said earlier that 70% of Republicans feel, believe that the vote was, was stolen, yeah, and it's and it's um, and democracy has been made a sham of exactly, but yet only forty four percent of Republicans want Trump to run again in twenty twenty four, and it's the people that were backing him up, you know, the Mitch McConnells and the Chris Christies and all that kind of stuff. They're all now distancing themselves from from the man himself. I think the world is distancing himself from Chris Christie, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that's... <laughs> he, he's a complete gosh. <laughs> but I, I take your point. No, I think what we're talking about is the Republican, the heart and soul of the Republican Party is up for grabs. Yeah. But do you remember what we said a couple of years? It's a great quote. Go on. That the right seek converts while the left seek traitors. And this is what's happening. So... We can see it in the Democrats. The Bernies are against the Clinton Democrats in the middle of the road. Yes. Because the left seek traitors. They never unify. It's the same here. Ultimately, they will coalesce around someone if they think that someone is a winner. Yeah. And that's that's Trump's future. If he can say, I can win this for you, they'll hold their nose and go behind him again. Let's keep our eye on this. As we said last week. Skibbery Eagle. We're keeping Donald Trump. We're keeping our eye on him. While I still have you, listen, thank you so much. Thank you really so much for your time this year. John and I are bowled over at the amount of people who are listening. You're giving us your time, and that is an amazingly generous thing to do. So we really appreciate it. It's been a hoot. 2022 will be even more dynamic. Won't it, John? It's even sure more will. dynamic. It sure will. It sure will. And what we're going to do in January, because let's get our head around January, New Year's resolutions. What are you going to do? John's going to learn the drums. I am. I'm going to learn how to play football, which is a bit late in my career. Or some DIY. Some DIY. And if you want to learn economics, do it with us here on the podcast. We have two courses. If you join up with Patreon, we have two macroeconomic courses. They're basically the courses I give in Trinity in an audio form. They are macroeconomics. They're about international relations. They're about money. They're about finance. They're about psychology. They're about behavioral economics. And they're about evolutionary economics, which I believe will become the economics of the future. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Sign up in January. Talk to you next week.